Welcome to episode 149 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson and the New England Patriots. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and I'm joined today by our guest interviewer, uh, uh, Jay Healy, who is a senior research scholar at Columbia University School for International and Public Affairs. Uh, and for the news roundup, we'll have Michael Battis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. And Meredith Rathbone, uh, uh, our partner on uh, uh, export controls and sanctions. Uh, uh, and then I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, the record holder for returning to step to the practice law more times than any other lawyer. I gave up my uh, year-long refusal to engage in any sports watching to, uh, to watch the Super Bowl uh, and uh, when it got to 28-3, turned it off and went to bed. Uh, so uh, continuing a, a long streak of uh, uh, abusive uh, uh, watching of professional sports. Why don't we jump right in? Um, we have a, a, an innovation uh, this uh, week. We're going to talk about actual law, um, at least a little. Um, uh, Google has its own Microsoft Ireland case, and it lost, uh, at least in front of the magistrate. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, what happened, and what does it mean? Yeah, well, it's uh, first of all, it's not really an Ireland case because we don't know where the emails are stored. I, I actually think that's. I, I think that might, that might be the problem. Is that uh, uh, the Microsoft Ireland case? If you call this the Google uh, uh, equivalent, is Google cyberspace. They don't know where this data is. That's right. I mean, the, the, the basics is the basics are that um, Google refused to comply with a search with two search warrants seeking the contents of email that turned out to be stored abroad. But there are some key factual differences in the Microsoft case. Uh, first of all, um, the way Google has set up its email system, um, it breaks up the content of emails and stores them on any number of servers around the world. And according to the magistrate's decision, at least, um, Google at any given time doesn't actually know where the various pieces of a particular email may be. So it doesn't know if they're stored in Ireland or the UK or Japan or the US or, or somewhere uh, else. Um, some other key differences here, the, the email account holders reside in the U.S., so there was much a much clearer nexus uh, to the U.S. The emails were exchanged solely between persons uh, in the U.S. The crimes under investigation occurred in the U.S., and the victims were do domiciled um, in the U.S. So none of those facts actually ended up mattering to the judge, but I think they certainly create a much more sympathetic uh, picture from the government's perspective. Um, ultimately, the, the, the court said, um, contrary to what the Second Circuit said, uh, that there's no extraterritorial application of the Stored Communications Act here because uh, the seizure of the emails only occurs not when Google goes out and, and grabs the, the emails and brings them back to the U.S., but only when it basically turns them over to the government. And the search occurs only when the government actually reviews the emails and those things happen in the U.S. Therefore, it's all happening domestic, domestically, um, which is in direct contrast to what the Second Circuit held in the Microsoft case. But you know, I have to say, I, the, the, Google could hardly have made a less appetizing art, argument. Uh, with with Microsoft, you could say the stuff's in Ireland. If you want it, go to the Irish authorities and get a, uh, an order. Uh, Following the MLAT, uh, the, the mutual assistance, legal, uh, mutual legal assistance treaty, uh, and you'll get it. I, this argument is sort of Google says it's lost in cyberspace. Uh, maybe you should go talk to uh, the rulers of cyberspace about getting access to this. It's just it, it's utterly implausible as a practical matter, and it kind of pushed the, the magistrate judge in the direction, I think, of saying, I got a solution. How about we just say that uh, it isn't uh, seized, it isn't searched until somebody here in the United States looks at it? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think you're right. Um, and I think uh, there's an interesting question about whether Google uh, expected or even wanted to win this case. Um, you know, ultimately, I think Congress needs to step in and uh, amend the SCA to, to deal with this problem uh, because I think the, the whole notion that nothing relevant is happening outside the United States is just 
is ludicrous to me. Um, but that's where the, the magistrate was forced uh, to end up um, in a way, you know, to avoid, I think, what would be uh, a really troublesome result of having, you know, Google just be able to set up its email system in a way that uh, no one can get access to uh, the emails under the, the law. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's so John Perry Barlow. You know, your uh, your empires of meat and steel have no dominion over us. Uh, I, and, 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 you know, no judge is going to buy that, I think. Yeah, I, I think you're right. So it's going to be interesting, what, you know, as this goes forward, um, you know, whether Google continues to, to fight it and if we ultimately end up with, uh, in this case, I guess it would be a, a Third Circuit decision that might uh, potentially conflict with the Second Circuit. You could end up in the Supreme Court, uh, yeah. but we've got a way to go before we get there. So um, uh, here's a plug for uh, why everyone should listen to the uh, Steptoe Cyber Law podcast. It would prevent you, if you're a member of the Democratic Party or the press, from freaking out unnecessarily over uh, um, the uh, uh, Trump administration's actions, uh, easing at least one sanction with uh, uh, Russia. Um, because almost a month ago, it was a month ago, uh, uh, Meredith came on the program last time you were here, I think, uh, and uh, told us that uh, one of the weirdnesses of of the uh, Obama administration sanction on Russia was that by sanctioning the FSB and telling um, uh, American companies they couldn't do business with it, uh, it meant you couldn't uh, actually send them your products to get licenses to sell them inside uh, Russia. Uh, and we speculated that that wouldn't last long. It didn't, but uh, the relief came uh, from uh, uh, the Trump administration and Everybody flipped out. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, people who listen to the podcast probably didn't. Yes, uh, so. Those of us who are, you know, export controls and sanctions folks uh, kind of saw this as a very standard uh, administrative tweak and one, in fact, that we and our clients had been asking for. And, and it was sort of expected, right? That, that some yeah, kind of general license right. was going to come out. Tre Treasury had been kind of signaling, yeah, yeah, we understand the problem. Right, yeah. Tre uh, the, the folks over at Treasury said, uh, you know, as soon as they got wind of the fact that U.S. companies weren't going to be able to uh, make their standard filings with the FSB anymore, they said, okay, we'll see what we can do to fix it. Let's make sure we fully understand the problem first, and then we'll, we'll fix it. Uh, and they did. Uh, but uh, so we saw that come out in the middle of the day and thought, oh, great, they've fixed it. And then a couple hours later, we saw the breaking so-called breaking news on, on CNN. <laughs> so obviously, uh, you know, we, we get a lot of journalists listening to us, but uh, apparently not CNN or at least not the people who write the chirons at the bottom. Uh, right. So, uh, yeah. uh, so it was an interesting one. So so, yeah, it's something that was expected and, and hoped for. Basically, any, uh, you know, anybody who um, well, who who gets the crypto guide uh, that we publish or who otherwise follows these issues knows that in Russia and a lot of other countries, you need to get a, a permit to import certain types of encryption products into the country. Uh, in Russia, you have to go through the SFB to make your filing and to do that. Uh, now the Treasury Department has said, oh, yeah, you can start doing that again. Sorry about the inconvenience over the past month. Uh, and uh, the next step, we think, will be for one of its kind of cousin uh, entities, the Department of Commerce, Bureau of Industry and Security, to do something similar. Uh, so, to allow uh, the people to ship tech data to, uh, to Russia. Right, right, exactly. So, so when the FSB was added to the Treasury Department's SDN list, it was shortly thereafter added to the Commerce Department's entity list, uh, the entity list uh, designation means that you can't ship any uh, goods, products, or in this case, technology uh, to the FSB. When you make your filings, you don't necessarily have to use proprietary technology in all of them. Uh, if what you include in your filing is publicly available, you're good now with this um, Treasury Department uh, tweak. But if you do include any sort of non-public information, any non-public technology in your filings, uh, you would still right now today need a license from the Commerce Department. So be on the lookout for a further tweak, perhaps, if they're not uh, spooked 
Well, you hear that, CNN? Mess. Don't flip out. <laughs> from the Commerce Department uh, to make a similar change. Okay. Uh, 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 always fun to, to see your uh, field featured on CNN and to see it featured wrong. Uh, it's very exciting. Uh, uh, all right. I, the next thing I wanted to talk about uh, is Neil Gorsuch uh, because he's written at least one opinion that's kind of squarely in the cyber law uh, podcast wheelhouse uh, about uh, uh, when you can do computer searches. Uh, um, and indeed, it's actually a pretty far-reaching uh, uh, child porn uh, decision and one that um, is pretty bad for child porn enforcers, as as I read it. Uh, um, uh, Michael, I don't know if you looked at this. This is U.S. versus Ackerman, uh, and uh, it's a Gorsuch opinion uh, uh, from 2016 that talks about uh, somebody who uh, had his uh, uh, sent his computer in uh, uh, and or actually I guess he got email and. Uh, on his AOL account, AOL said uh, some of these uh, attachments hashed to some um, signatures that we have for child porn, and so we're sending the pictures to NICMEC, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, because that's what the law requires um, AOL to do. NICMEC then uh, went through all of them and said, yep, child porn turned Ackerman in, he was prosecuted, and he says, this is an illegal search uh, by the government without a warrant. Uh, is that pretty much what happened? It is. Uh, and, you know, this is the way a lot of email providers work, that they, they screen their um, subscribers' emails uh, and compare, uh, you know, the hash values of, of the contents to known images of child pornography. And if they get a hit, they send it to NCMEC. Um NICMEC is a, a congressionally uh, authorized um, entity that basically works uh, with law enforcement to find child pornography. Uh, and the first issue here was whether NICMEC was acting as a governmental entity when it opened the, the images to see if they were indeed child pornography or, or uh, was the agent of the government. Um, and on that, the, the government actually didn't really resist very hard, according to Gorsuch's opinion, at least. Uh, and so he didn't have a lot of trouble finding that uh, NECMEC actually uh, is a governmental entity, even though it's, it's somewhat independent. It's got a congressional charter, essentially. Uh, it, it's, it serves uh, a governmental purpose. Uh, and even if it's not a governmental entity, it's entity, it's clearly acting as the, the government's agent. But the more interesting question was, then was whether, uh, okay, is, is NICMEC still, um, did, it not, did it not conduct a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment because it went no farther than AOL did in comparing the hash values? And there uh, the court said, well, it actually did go farther than, than uh, AOL did because it actually opened the images, which AOL never did. It just looked at the hash values. Um, what's most interesting to me is that there was one more argument the government had for why there was no search, which is, hey, third-party doctrine. When you use a, a commercial email provider, you're basically giving up your reasonable expectation of privacy because you're allowing uh, a third party to see the contents of your communications. And... Um, while Gorsuch alluded to that issue, he said uh, it was more prudent not to resolve it because the, the, the district court didn't look at it either. So uh, it was interesting that he chose not to address that issue um, when it was clearly relevant. Uh, and it was offered by the government. Uh, yeah, and usually so, you can, you can uh, uh, uphold decisions on pretty much any ground. Exactly. And he acknowledged that. And, uh, you know, it, it would certainly not have been dictum to address it, uh, but he, he chose not to. So, uh, you know, if this were a Obama or Clinton appointee who had reached this result, I think you'd see uh, the blogosphere uh, lit up about, you know, this pro-child pornography decision and, and pro-child uh, pornographers. Uh, but uh, I haven't seen any 
criticism of that nature, which is kind of interesting. It is interesting I, I, because this is a big deal, right? This is a, I, I, I actually can't disagree with either of his conclusions here, right? uh, it, but it clearly was not uh, – Congress was not thinking about this when they passed it. Uh, uh, and Nick Mick has never thought it had a problem here. Uh, and so this could let a lot of child pornographers off the hook. Uh, um, and, yeah, and, it essentially means that, that Nick Mick's got to get a warrant, uh, or somebody's got to get a warrant on, to allow Nick Mick to to conduct these searches um, when they they get images from email providers. Yeah, and that's and, a big deal. Yeah, I, and he, I didn't see any sense that. Um, you know, he was deterred from kind of just reading the statute and following the law, uh, despite the kind of significant policy implications of this. Yeah, and, and again, it, 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 it was interesting that the government really did not seem to fight very hard on the question of whether Nick was a government agent or not, which I, which, uh, if that's true, that, that's pretty, um, telling. So I happen uh, to know him, but, it, but, uh, Peculiarly, uh, but I've spent a fair amount of time. He is a. It, this sounds like him, right? It's very straightforward. It's well written. It, it kind of uh, explains everything so that anybody can understand it, and you kind of uh, always know where you are. Uh, it, it's uh, very straight ahead uh, uh, legal reasoning. Um, uh, I, I, I guess it does suggest that uh, if he gets confirmed, he will be, as Scalia was, somebody whose uh, willingness to be skeptical about the government's authority uh, sometimes takes him to places that uh, uh, liberals um, often fear to tread. Yeah, I will say this, though. Um, he certainly does not follow the writing style of his, or at least one of his uh, judicial mentors, Justice White, because... Uh, while the, the opinion is fairly easy to follow and straightforward, it's at least twice as long as it needs to be. Um, and White was known for his brevity, as I'm sure you recall from your yes. question days. Uh, this this opinion is rather verbose, um, and I just uh, that that struck me in, in reading it. Uh, well, and it doesn't have any it doesn't have any of it doesn't have Scalia's pugilism either. It's uh, uh, nobody. Nobody comes in for a tongue lashing or a mocking. It's just uh, here. It, it's kind of just the facts, man. Which, which I, I must say, uh, is is a relief because uh, <laughs> you, you think we got enough of that. <laughs> certainly not as entertaining, but um, you know, if he is confirmed, he he may have an easier time finding uh, additional votes uh, when he's when he's trying to create a majority. Okay. As Scalia ever did. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, it is my theory now that, uh, the great writers of the Supreme Court, uh, uh, mostly can also be characterized as being completely unfair to the arguments they are addressing. Uh, uh, um, that's, uh, you know, when you go back and look at Oliver Wendell Holmes' decisions with a, um, more skeptical eye, uh, you know, when he says, uh, three generations of imbeciles is enough, you kind of think, uh, Oh, you know, that's a memorable phrase, but maybe not the world's fairest uh, statement of the case. Uh, um, and Scalia could, uh, was perfectly capable of that as well. Um, okay, and, and actually so was Jackson, uh, uh, another great writer. Uh, it, it turns out that being a great memorable writer means leaving out the boring stuff that qualifies what you have to say. All right. Um, we're all waiting still for the cybersecurity executive order. It was, it, it was leaked. It was on the verge of being issued. It was going to be issued any minute. It was going to be issued after the, or, the meeting with uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani's group. It was going to come out uh, momentarily. And now it's a week since anybody has made any promises like that. Looks like they are putting in place a set of procedures and principles for issuing executive orders that is meant to discipline the process a little, uh, and the first victim of that was the uh, uh, cyber security uh, executive order, which is ironic because of all the ones that we saw leaked or released, it was the 
most procedural and the most cautious and probably a, uh, the most vetting of any of them, uh, uh, but it's now caught in the, uh, uh, the backlash to the last set of orders. And um, there's a case uh, that we probably don't need to spend too much time on uh, uh, that is now pending in the uh, um, uh, D.C. Circuit, uh, um, which is uh, going to test a theory I've had, which is that uh, we should start suing the governments that are uh, 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 hacking uh, companies uh, uh, and that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act provides an exception for tortious acts, uh, including uh, hacking uh, 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 the uh, uh, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act uh, uh, allows um, uh, uh, state-sponsored hackers uh, to be sued, at least that's the theory, uh, and we're waiting to see whether, in fact, uh, um, the courts permit uh, um, a Foreign Sovereign Immunities uh, uh, waiver to, uh, to take place here. Uh, uh, Michael, did you take a look at this, uh, at this case? This is an Ethiopian case, the Ethiopian government was uh, sending out um, uh, malware to American residents who are Ethiopian uh, human rights campaigners. Uh, uh, and when the uh, Ethiopian human rights campaigner in the United States discovered he had uh, malware on his computer, he decided to sue the Federal Republic of Ethiopia, which has claimed foreign sovereign immunity. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Randy Moss, Judge Randy Moss, uh, Actually said, yeah, they do have immunity, notwithstanding that this is a, uh, uh, you know, that hacking somebody's computer is a tort uh, that uh, uh, U.S. law recognizes. Uh, uh, so where this will come out, I don't know. Um, my sense of this is that uh, um, I'm kind of surprised at whose side I'm on here. EFF uh, is enthusiastically arguing that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act does allow uh, uh, this kind of um, uh, lawsuit. Uh, whether uh, uh, whether it succeeds, still anybody's guess. Uh, but Judge Moss, pretty thoughtful judge. Yeah, pretty thoughtful judge and very smart uh, judge. Uh, smart and was a smart lawyer. Um, and so the issue, I think, on appeal is uh, whether... Uh, whether Ethiopia's alleged acts took place entirely within the United States and therefore may fall within an exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act or whether uh, some of the actions took place abroad and therefore uh, don't fall within that exception. In a way, this is kind of the flip side, uh, flip side of the, uh, the Google case that we started out discussing where you're trying to figure out, okay, where, when you're dealing with cyberspace, where do actions uh, uh, have their their relevant locusts, uh, or do they have more than, than one locust? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's hard it's hard to see the logic of of saying that you know the the acts took place entirely within the U.S. If Ethiopia you know started the, the, the hack or the spreading of the malware uh, from Ethiopia or from someplace else uh, abroad, um, but if you define the relevant acts as just where the injury took place, then you could see how how you get there. Uh, but these, are, I think, will be the, the key issues that the D.C. Circuit has to resolve. Yeah, so we'll get to see. This is the Kadani case. Uh, we'll get to see that presumably sometime in the next six months. It'll come down from the D.C. Circuit. Uh, um, a couple of things that uh, we'll just clean up stuff that uh, we talked about earlier. Um, uh, the... Uh, uh, Brexit uh, passed the House of Commons, uh, uh, so uh, um, we're likely to, uh, not, despite the fact that the court uh, thought it was throwing a real monkey wrench into the works for Brexit, uh, um, Theresa May got the uh, uh, approval of the House of Commons pretty quickly for a pretty laconic uh, proposal to uh, uh, invoke uh, Article 50. Uh, uh, and Theresa May has promised uh, that uh, she's going to do a data deal with the EU uh, on the way out. Uh, not a surprise that she would aspire to do that. Um, and there's a Google case. Uh, uh, Google was uh, sued for 
uh, wiretapping every single uh, user of Gmail uh, um, because it uh, scanned all of the email coming incoming. As you remember, we that case was settled. Uh, uh, basically, uh, Google moved the inspection of all the emails to a different point on its system. Uh, speaking of uh, 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 cyberspace, uh, um, uh, uh, turning out to be quite convenient from a legal point of view, uh, and um, uh, there were no damages awarded, uh, just some C-Prey um, uh, payments, uh, and that settlement's now been approved along with the C-Prey stuff that we talked about uh, about six weeks ago. Um, finally, um, Austrian hotel guests were inconvenienced but were not actually locked in their rooms uh, uh, by ransomware. Uh, um, that story, uh, great story, unfortunately, not completely true. Uh, the ransomware did make it hard to uh, issue new keys, but uh, uh, the Austrian hotel guests uh, could get in and out of their rooms. Um, anything else uh, uh, that, that you saw, Michael? Did the one the one thing I would observe is that you apparently were not the only one who turned the game off when it was 28-3. Uh, President Trump reportedly did also, <laughs> uh, despite despite his uh, famous uh, or notorious friendship with um, the owner of the Patriots, with uh, Bill Belichick, and with Tom Brady. Well, and I see that... So uh, friends like that. Yep, uh, exactly. Yeah, uh, Fairweather friends indeed uh, can't even make it through the uh, the evening. Uh, and I see in, in other sports news, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act uh, uh, violations have cost the Cardinals two high draft picks and $2 million, which means... They won't get into the Super Bowl next year. Uh, so uh, I don't know, if, 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 but if they follow the Patriots path, that might guarantee them a uh, Super Bowl win. <laughs> okay. Perhaps Roger Goodell is 0 for 1 when it comes to uh, uh, Super Bowl victories by his uh, nemeses. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, that's our news roundup. Uh, let's now turn to our interview with Jay Healy. All right, so our guest today uh, is Jay or Jason Healy, um, uh, who has been in the cybersecurity uh, um, policy realm for quite a while, uh, mostly associated with the Atlantic Council, uh, but he is also... Uh, uh, at Columbia uh, as a senior research scholar in the School for International and Public Affairs. Uh, 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 Jay, any other uh, uh, accolades and uh, emoluments we ought to uh, acknowledge? I think I'm emolumated out. <laughs> okay. All right. So you've produced a report that I wanted to talk about uh, uh, called A Non-State Strategy for Saving Cyberspace, which is uh, a bold title. Uh, you're going to save cyberspace, and it's not – it's a non-state strategy. Uh, why don't you give us the one-minute version, uh, the, the elevator speech uh, uh, for this report? Yeah, and, and I'd like to later talk to why we, we laid it out that way. But for me, when, when people say, well, what's our overall goal needs to be when it comes to cyberspace? I say we need to have a sustainable cyberspace, a sustainable Internet. We want our kids and our grandkids to have an Internet that's at least as secure, as resilient, as awesome as the one that we have today. Within cybersecurity, I think what we need to do to get there is we've got to get, or at least try to get defense better than offense or else we're, it's not going to be sustainable over the long term. The way to do that, um, the theory of the case, if you were, is the lever is going to be predominantly in the private sector to engage, empower, and enforce to try and get that done. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to, rem- uh, to, trying to think how hard it would be to just keep Things about as bad as they are now, uh, having <laughs> right. have, having been uh, uh, Twitter bullied uh, about three weeks ago, uh, I uh, yep. I have to say um, I don't know how awesome the uh, the internet is even today. Uh, but you're right. I, I certainly remember before there was an internet uh, when you went to the library and uh, looked things up in the card catalog, uh, and there was stuff that you knew was knowable, but you didn't know it, and you never would. Uh, and mm-hmm. those days are over, right? Um, so uh, we're clearly in a different world. It would be cool to keep it uh, awesome 
system and not to have it turn into a den of crime. Um, so great goal. Um, I'm, I'm not quite so sure what you're going to do to, to do that without states, especially since as if I think I heard you right, you said enforce in there, which doesn't sound like a non-state function. Right. The, the way I tend to think about it is, yeah, I mean, without, without a doubt, there's going to be a role for government. But for too long in too many of our strategies, we've, when you think about, all right, where's the leverage? Where's the locus of control? We've said, all right, it's going to be government, right? Information shouldn't just be shared. It should be shared with government. Um, when the response happens, when the U.S., for example, does a national cyber incident response plan, who does it talk about? It talks about government. It largely talks about, in that case, the DHS internal process and what's going to happen at the end kick. When you look at how cyber incidents actually get fixed, it's overwhelmingly the private sector that, that's at the heart of that. So what we're trying to, what I try to say in that is in the, in the non-state strategy is to say, look, there are nine players on the field. We can't have the government running around to every play saying, I got it, I got it, I got it. Not every play is going to be a public-private sector partnership. That most of the time when the ball is hit, I'm making a baseball analogy here, Stuart. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm that, completely lost already. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, that it's going to be hit to some of us in the private sector. Now, more often than not, they're going to make a play and the government's not even going to know that the ball was even hit. But a lot of times, as you and I know, that that, that non-state player isn't going to have a good enough glove. They're not going to be able to see the ball clearly. They might not even know that they're really in the playing in the game. That's certainly how I was when I was playing baseball as a kid, right? <laughs> and so there's certainly a role for the government that can help in all of those. Um, but for too long, we've had a theory of the case, if you will, that boy, we just got to have more government, and the government's got to be getting involved. So let me and push up. Let me push the back way that, that most of these have been solved. I, I, Go ahead, because I. I, cause I, I I don't remember when that was actually the case. I mean, I remember Ira Magazina writing this report about how wonderful the Internet was going to be and we should keep our damn hands off, no regulation, you know, go away. Um, and uh, I, I, I can't remember the time when – it's true that when we talk about information sharing, we talk about sharing with the government, but that was because there were unique – uh, legal barriers to sharing with the government and the, uh, what the government wanted to do was to be part of sharing that was already happening in the private sector, not that they wanted to run it. Uh, uh, and incident response, you know, it's natural that when government talks about how it's going to do incident response, it talks about what it's going to do because that's the only thing it can actually control and it sort of hopes other people are going to play a role but uh uh you know we if we started planning for the private sector we'd actually be doing uh a state intervention strategy for saving sp- cyberspace wouldn't we i mean maybe maybe not i mean but you you said it would be i mean to to cherry pick some of the words you said well it's natural that the government's going to focus on what it can can control Mm-hmm. And um, and you're right. The government can focus on what it controls, but what it controls in cyberspace is really, really small. Um, you know, a, a friend of ours, Mark Fox, when he was with Verizon, said to me, um, "Look, Jay. I mean, we're creating and maintaining cyberspace every day in companies like Verizon. We can bend it if we need to." Um, and Microsoft has said, "You know, boy, we can change the physics of cyberspace, and the private sector can do that. And governments, generally, so OECD governments, generally can't." So instead of focusing, as we have in many of our strategies, on what the government can, can control, let's focus on the output and let's figure out who who is already involved in such things. Okay, but so um, I, 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 I grant you that, or at least I will grant that the private sector has an enormous stake in yeah. cyberspace being more secure than it is now because, yeah. you know, the, the losses are going to be staggering and uh, um, life in, in Silicon Valley won't be uh, cool anymore uh, if nobody really wants to use cyberspace. Um, but Aren't they doing that already? Uh, what is it that uh, a government strategy that is aimed at getting the private, uh, focusing on the private sector, would actually do other than stand, uh, well, maybe this is what the coaches in Little League actually do, stand at the sidelines and clap when things go well and uh, uh, otherwise uh, pray? I think it aligns, it, it helps us think about how we want to approach 
the solutions. So that, like, I'm not against regulation, um, but thinking about, all right, what's the private sector has helped me think about more directly how do we align the incentives in, in the correct direction. Um, it helps me think when I go through my list of public policy levers, it helps me think about what kinds of solutions are going to be the ones that work best. So, for example, I, I tend to be fans of where can we, um, if companies aren't doing what we think they need to be right. doing, um, what public policy do, tools do we like? Um, I tend to be those that are going to be aligning the, the mo- those market incentives best with the least government intervention necessary. So I like regulating for transparency. Um, it's not there yet, but solutions like the SEC guidance. Okay. That says, you know what, if you company are not making good cybersecurity decisions, predominantly that's an issue for the shareholders. So you've got to tell your shareholders and we, we work in that direction to try and get that private sector governance mechanism that's already we rely on so much in the United States. And we look to do what we can more there. So, okay. I, I, I'll, 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 I'll start with that. And I'd like to contrast that if I, yep. contrast that in a bit and if I can come back to that. Okay. I, and I, so what you're saying, I guess, is we are going to need government to, uh, nudge or more than nudge the private sector toward solving problems. And you, at one point you call it the, 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 the tragedy of the commons that, uh, uh, no one wants to work on problems that will benefit them only slightly, but which require a fair amount of work on their part to, uh, to address. Um, and so, um, one way to address that is to say at least we should make sure the market is working for people's evaluation of companies. Uh, companies should be required to disclose uh, the uh, cybersecurity failures that they've had so that the rest of the world can say, wow, I really don't want to invest in a company that's that bad at security, and that will incentivize more security. Is that fair? And you know what? If I could convince one person in the world to take, cyber seriously if we really want to make a big difference. It's not going to be the President of the United States. And, and I say this mostly, but not entirely tongue-in-cheek. Um, it's Warren Buffett. Right? I mean, I, every, you know, I would hear about DHS that would f- be flying away and talking to some board of directors to get them to use like the, the NIST framework and take cyber um, seriously. And I get that. You know, good. You're, you're getting the board to take this seriously. But it doesn't scale. And so, boy, if you could convince Warren Buffett to say, I care about cybersecurity, my companies are all going to use the NIST cybersecurity framework, and I'm not going to invest in a company unless they use the NIST cybersecurity framework, mm-hmm. then, then you have changed, right? You, you are now using those market incentives and using that, um, the way the, the private sector works, and everybody's going to take that seriously, right? You are going to be talking to every single board that's out there. You're going to be in the FT for days. And to me, this gets to the, to the purpose of the case, is government action tend not to scale really well. Um, so if we can get our the government policies and priorities to help the private sector scale in the way that it needs to. Uh, and by the way, another example I'd use in that is CalPERS, the right. California pension system. Before Y2K, they went to every one of their companies, thousands of companies, and said, Tell us how you were doing on Y2K, because that puts our money at risk of California pensioners, of, of, of employees. Let's use those kinds of mechanisms. So instead of having a regulation that says you must be secure to this level, let's get those people that care about that on behalf of the shareholders, because that scales. So that's let me let me let me stop you there. Mechanism. Let me stop you there yep. because uh, it seems to me that if I'm a rational shareholder and I I believe that uh, a company will be more valuable if it is more secure, uh, I'm going to look for this whether the government's got it in its strategy or not. Uh, and it doesn't matter to me what the government's strategy is. My strategy for making money is to find out if these companies are doing a good job, and I might say, and a great way to Educate me is to walk me through the uh, uh, the NIST framework, so I don't have to learn your uh, language, but you're talking mine. Uh, makes perfect sense. Maybe people will do it. Maybe they won't. 
but um, it, it seems to me the market's going to be a much more efficient driver of that kind of behavior than uh, a government strategy paper. Um, I, I I think we can do that. I think I I think I agree with you. And so, but I think what government can do is it can help on that transparency. I mean, it can help with not just the you know, for example, I've been talking about one mechanism with the shareholders. There's other mechanisms. You know, Rob, our colleague Robert Kanaki has talked about what we can do to get the insurance market to work better. And maybe that requires a federal piece for an insurance backstop like TRIA um, to help make that work better. And so when I say non-state... You know, I, I, let me stop you there, because I have been... I think when I left DH, when I left NSA in the mid-90s, I went to a meeting on uh, uh, the insurance industry and cybersecurity. Uh, it was probably the first meeting in Washington that it had ever been held. And we've been talking about that for 30 years. Uh, and it's always been... I, to my mind, it's always been government folks hoping that somehow the insurance companies <laughs> right, right, right. would do the regulating that the uh, uh, the government was afraid to do, uh, and it hasn't happened. Uh, there, you know, the, the insurance industry is in the business of dealing with risks that people are afraid of, uh, and if they're not afraid of regulatory risk, then you kind of have to show them there is a risk, and then you have to have enough of those risks for the insurance companies to be able to say, and we know how to value that and uh, spread that risk uh, uh, effectively. Uh, but it's it, the governments and the strategy thinkers hopes for insurance, I suspect, are doomed to be uh, deflated <laughs> forever. It, uh, well, again, I don't I don't give up on on forever, Stuart. The um, I, I, I certainly agree with you that every Policymakers love to, to talk about insurance as one of those market mechanisms that might come together, and we've been talking about it for a long time. I mean, how much do we've got? Nine, nine billion, ten billion, um, in policies, and it's just not nearly enough. Um, but what I bring up is not as a necessarily a specific case, but this place of where if we can get these incentives aligned across a larger set to get the market to get the market working better. Okay, so I, I'm going to I'm going to put this in the list of uh, you'd like to see regulatory initiatives that nudge and encourage as opposed to mandate and demand uh, uh, that people improve, that individual companies improve their own cybersecurity, uh, um, particularly, presumably, if they're uh, in critical infrastructure. Uh, yes. Okay. So what else? What? Because that strikes me as yep. that is the strategy that DHS has been pursuing for the last uh, no, three or yeah. four years. Uh, I mean, it's not a strategy. I mean, you, right. you can... I don't buy that that's a strategy. Okay, There's you wait, a you list of actions and those sit amongst them. So you have advertised that you have a strategy. So I, I'm trying to I mean, assemble a strategy from, from your recommendations. Right. I mean, to me, the uh, where I came in with non-state strategy is what have been our best national security strategies, right? The most successful national security strategy ever was one word. It was containment. Yep. And right, everybody in the Cold War generally agreed on um, on the strategy. You, they disagreed on the tactics. They said, this is how we're going to go. Insurgency, counterinsurgency, right? You knew if, if you were a staff sergeant walking into a tribal village and you worked for General Petraeus, you know, your boss's 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 boss was General Petraeus, you knew what the strategy was going to be. Yep. That you were there to try and win hearts and minds. And, yep. and if you're working for another general at another time in another war... You would know that, no, my job is to kill the bad guys. Right. I, I have a body so right, <laughs> quoted to me. Right. So the right, the strategy of win hearts and minds versus stabbing the insurgent, that's a strategy that dri then drives all the actions below it. And you, now, you, you can't you, tell me that in the U.S. we've had a strategy that's like that. That and, you say, here's what we're going to lay out. And you know, no matter how far down in the organization, how you fit in that strategy. Our strategies have been a list of connected actions um, that all make perfect sense, but you're not getting down to here is the strategy of what we're trying to accomplish. You know, the strategy is let's secure cyberspace, and that's not a strategy. So I, 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 you know, you could argue that it's an Aristotelian rather than a Platonic uh, strategy, but I, I, I'll, I'll, no, I'll I, I wouldn't argue that. No, you wouldn't. But or a common law rather than a civil law approach. But let, let, am I right that if you had to reduce your strategy to two words, it would be 
defense dominant? Um, yeah, I mean, and sometimes I'll just flop back and forth if dominance is the right word, but but advantage certainly. Okay, so um, that would argue that whenever the government intervenes, it's trying to shore up defenses. Is that is that uh, not whenever? Okay. Uh, you know, right now we, we've had again and again and again, especially this administration. Say it's a balance, it's a balance, it's a balance. It's about, you know, of course the United States needs to have law enforcement tools. Of course we have, you know, the president has to have cyber capabilities, um, both for offense and espionage. Um, and when it comes down to it, it's a balance. But, you know, in a balance, what's, what's a balance? What's a priority? Again, because it's not driven by a strategy. Every, if something's a balance, every single decision that comes through the interagency process is then, well, where does this fit on the balance? By yeah. saying defense advantage, I'm trying to put my thumb on that scale and saying when it comes down, we're going to default to defense unless there's a good reason not to. So let me two let me, places let me, the omid, let, let me just one, one, yep. one second. Two places the Obama administration did do this was on the vulnerabilities equities process, where they said our bias is that we will tell the vendor unless we've got a good reason to keep it. Mm-hmm. And two, they said um, in in thirteen six three six is that when the U.S. government has information about a U.S. company that's been owned, our public policy bias is to tell them. I love those because those are a defense advantage. Now, what I would like to do is take that and say, let's make that the default. Let's make that the priority. Mm. Okay. So here's my – I have two observations about that. First, um, it – feels in this context like small ball. If, if, if the National Security Agency told every company on the planet about the vulnerabilities that the NSA had found, and if the FBI told every uh, company on the planet about the vulnerabilities it knew about that they didn't know about, it would move the needle less than 1%. Uh, I I, I bring this up as examples of public policy decisions that were defense advantage. Yeah, okay. So, Um, And and I think actually that uh, that has probably always been the – uh, the default, and uh, you know, it certainly was uh, at NSA when I was there in the '90s. The assumption was we want a yep. secure infrastructure, uh, and it turned out that the the exploitation techniques that people were using were, um, for a variety of ways, uh, relatively small pieces of the overall um, vulnerability of infrastructure for a and, lot of reasons. And, and what I love about what you brought up here, Stuart, and, and uh, with Columbia SIPA, we're doing a New York cyber task force with some of the um, with some of the CISOs like Greg Rattray. Ed Amoroso, Phil Venables, and others, um, to pick up this point, because you're right, those decisions that I mentioned, the vulnerability equities process and FBI sharing, they're both defense advantage. They both aid the defender more than the, than the, the offense. But neither one, your, your point was that they don't scale. And I really like that point, because the salu- if we're going to get towards defense advantage, defense dominant, they have to be both things that are defense advantage, and they've got to really scale. Like, look at Windows Update. Right, Windows Update wasn't cheap, um, but everything that Microsoft put into Windows Update, I mean, we're getting what's been the, the return on investment from that that defenders have gotten because it had that real hyper scale to it. So if we're going to get towards defense dominance, we've got to find these things that aid the defense more than the offense and that really, really deliver scale. We can't keep spending X and get X or 2X back from what we do, especially from government action. We've got to really be trying to get that scale. Compare that to Vossenar, what we've been doing on the Vossenar agreement. Oh, my God. Yes. Right? We've got, I mean, I remember hearing from one of the cybersecurity majors saying, right now we need like 10 export licenses. If you do Vossenar, we stop counting at 1,000. So that puts really high, that imposes high costs on the defenders, but it doesn't impose similar costs on the attackers. So again, that's why I say the goal is the defense better than offense, and that's going to take scale, and that's the kind of thing that helps us say, what are the public policies that we need to prioritize, and what are those public policies that, even if they're helpful, 
we need to start dropping. So here's here's my my bigger objection to this uh, or concern about it. Uh, uh, you're you're fighting the technology. The fact is, attack is infinitely easier than defense. Uh, the the yep. defense yep. always loses. The attacker always wins. Yep. It has been that way since the 80s. Yep. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, sometimes that just happens. And wishing won't make it different. Uh, you remember uh, uh, for... 40 years or close to it, we lived with uh, the fact that uh, it was easy to uh, deliver atomic weapons, uh, atomic bombs, and mm-hmm. hard to defend against it uh, when when uh, they were all launched on missiles. Yeah. And um, there were there was a whole movement in the 80s to mock efforts to build a defense as, <laughs> right. you know, uh, uh, wishful thinking uh, uh, weaponized. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the fact is, if we had spent all our money on defense in the 50s and the 60s instead of on developing our own ICBMs, on our own strategic air command, and our own uh, uh, missile launch systems, uh, uh, we would have been a lot less safe. So I, I, I wonder, do you have any evidence to, to suggest that if we put our thumb on the scales, it would do anything other than, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, leave us with a thumb on a scale, but the scale not going down. Um, yeah, I mean, in almost every single kind of warfare, um, in every kind of conflict, you've got this shift back and forth between the offense and the defense. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so that makes me feel that all right we've got a decent chance here because because it's generally been true. When you start digging in to why the offense has had the advantage. Right? We've got all kinds of reasons, and some of them I think we can take on. Um, some of the reasons are physics. You know, it's just the way the Internet is, and you just can't change it. Like, you can't build an Internet that's, for example, not scale-free and has a few other characteristics. Um, you just can't change them. Others are things that, that we do have influence on. We can make these. If we, if we work at scale... If you work at places where, for example, ISPs or things like Windows Update, and you set out to say our goal is defense advantage, what can we do to try and get there? Um, I do believe that we can at least, even if we can't get defense advantage, we can get ourselves better. So let me, it's let me it's play, like push you. You come on to that. New York City a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, when you're in New York City, it's vision zero. You see it on every cab on every cop car because they want to get pedestrian deaths down to zero. Now, of course, we're not going to get civilian deaths, pedestrian deaths down to zero, just like we're never going to get to zero nuclear weapons in the world. But if we can start. Not not the way New Yorkers jaywalk, that's for sure. (laughs) Right. All right, I, I take your point that, that it, it, it's it's worth shooting for, it, it's worth spending money on, it's worth uh, making an effort to. I completely agree with you. Uh, I, I remember that uh, uh, a British prime minister gave a speech in the 30s saying the bomber will always get through. Your women and children are going to be slaughtered before you are when you're fighting the next war, right? Uh, and... Uh, uh, he didn't say, so let's not work on radar and fighter jets and, <laughs> right. uh, and, and uh, proximity fuses. Um, and it turned out to be, you know, harder, though not impossible, to bomb the hell out of uh, uh, each other during World War II. Uh, so we do want to do that. But, I, boy, I, I'm not sure I would give up anything on the offense in order – to see if I couldn't create an artificial balance, because uh, uh, nobody else is going to do that. I, 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 this is a great point, Stuart. Um, and, and I, so here's a point. We can say, all right, here's the difference in the strategy. I say I want defense better than offense work in the private sector. Just like arguing over counterinsurgency, what is the best counterinsurgency? The more precise we are, with what the strategy is and what the lever is by how we can get there, the easier it is for us to say, no, I think this needs to be, it needs to be set here or here. And I think it leads us to better pol- public policy discussions and hopefully better pu- public policy outcomes. And I'd bet if General Alexander were on the phone, he would say, no, the private sector is, you know, is, pursues profit and 
the it needs to be action by the government and America's cyber powers at Fort Meade. That's a, that's an entirely reasonable way to try and to try and take an argument. I, I don't mean to use a straw man for him. Let him. No, oh, I'm but, sure he thinks actually now, the private sector is where it's at now. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Um, and but now once we start getting more clear about where we think the lever needs to be put and whether or not this is a reasonable goal, I think it brings us to a, um, a better position. Um, so without a doubt, I say clearly in the national security strategy that um, I think this technology of the it, it's all too often Washington D.C. thinks of cyberspace as the fifth domain of conflict, and we forget it's one of the most transformative technologies um, on our innovation, on economy, on the human race that we've done since Gutenberg, you know, since movable press. This is one of the most transformative technologies. And so I think when we talk about it as a fifth domain of conflict, that we start losing that sense of everything else that this depends on in the United States and around the globe. And it just becomes a a domain of conflict. Okay. So last again, last, I, I, last question. I yep. uh, picking from the things that made up this strategy or that fell out yep. of the strategy, if you're taking a platonic view, um, what is the the one thing that you would say um, is the biggest change or the most promising change in government policy that uh, you think comes from a defense-dominant uh, approach to cybersecurity? Um, if I had one thing that I like out of this is a single national strategy that lays out that our goal is defense better than offense. Um, because to me, when you get that mindset and say – um, that's the way that this president is going to come down on on the issue. To me, that then can get the interagency process working together. I'll give you one example because I know we're, we're, we're getting long here. If in the Obama administration, someone made it, someone was saying, hmm, you know, we've got these coal plants in West Virginia um, and these coal mines, and this is really going to help local jobs, I wonder what, my boss's boss's boss is going to think of this back in D.C. You, you kind of knew, whether you agreed with it or not, you generally knew which way the Obama administration was going to come down on that. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Trump administration and trade. Which way would the Obama administration have come down if we were talking between a trade-off between offense and defense? It's a balance. I have no idea which way he would have come down. All right, well. Me, regardless of which way this president wants to go, I'd like us to be clear on it. Uh, fair enough. I have a different suggestion. I think what you need is um, a campaign that wins the hearts and minds of uh, cybersecurity that, strategists everywhere. And great I'm going to suggest that you go to RSA next week in thigh-high leather boots with a bullwhip bull and a sign that says, I'm defense dominant. You want to make something of it? <laughs> and a bow tie. I need a bow tie for this. <laughs> exactly. All right, Jay. Uh, listen, what are you going to uh, be doing that uh, our listeners ought to hear about uh, from you and may want to uh, uh, follow up on? There is fantastic stuff going on. Um, as I mentioned, we've got this New York Cyber Task Force with a lot of the best CISOs and academics in the business that's picking up this idea of how we can try and be defense dominant. Um, that'll be out in the next quarter. Also, the uh, Tallinn, Tallinn Manual 2.0 is coming out at the Atlantic Council. We'll be having a launch event on that um, in the coming weeks. And also my favorite event, Stuart, the Cyber 912 Student Challenge. This is a cyber competition, but it's a not hack, counter hack, capture the flag. It's for public policy students to talk about the best national security policy advice. Mr. President, no one's died yet from the cyber attack. It's too early to go to NATO. We can't kill anyone, but... Let's think about sanctions, indictments, and moving a few fighter squadrons. Um, that's going to be mid-March 17th and 18th at American University. Sounds good. Oh, that's uh, that, that was right. that's a great agenda. I will be there uh, with rotten fruit for the rollout of Tallinn too. Uh, so uh, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to what all those grump. events. What a grump! <laughs> yes, that's my role in cyberspace. Uh, yeah. I am grump dominant. Uh, all right. Thank you to Jay Healy uh, for a great uh, discussion. To Michael Vattis and Meredith Rathbone from the News Roundup. Uh, as always, the Cyber Law podcast is open to feedback. Send your questions, suggestions for interview candidates. 
candidates or topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. We're getting some great feedback on things like the interviews. Uh, uh, and uh, please leave us a good review uh, on iTunes and other podcast aggregators. That's how people uh, find us. Uh, this has been episode 149 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We've got an uh, exciting 2017 ahead of us. We're going to get um, uh, hopefully some RSA participants uh, next week. Uh, Nick Weaver, the Senior Researcher for Networking and Security at the University of California, and a very opinionated and pretty knowledgeable guy uh, uh, will be one of our guests. Uh, we're going to try something new. Uh, we're going to get some great cybersecurity experts in a room together, and I'm going to ask them, yeah, but what do you tell your mom to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think because uh, we all – we are all used to holding forth. Jay, this probably happens to you. You hold forth on the risks, and and sooner or later somebody says, uh, "Yeah, well, I, I, what should I do? I've got this Windows XP machine." Mm-hmm. We need to be able to answer those questions, and hopefully, we'll get that from our uh, uh, our cybersecurity uh, researchers talk about their mom's discussion. Uh, uh, if you if you've got another um, uh, candidate for interview, uh, uh, send it to us. Uh, if we actually put the person on the air, we will send you a coveted Steptoe Cyber Law podcast mug, uh, and we hope you'll join us uh, for those and other interviews as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.